0: The world has changed and we're living in a new reality. I'm at home and you listening to this probably are too. I'm hoping I can whisk you away with the power of audio and imagination and remember our museums and galleries that currently lie quiet and empty, waiting for us to return and revel in their art and events. Mind you, the South End Sambuca Museum was always empty anyway. I'm not sure I noticed the difference. And it's very, very flammable. I'm Russell Kane. And welcome to a special edition of Meet Me at the Museum. And I have no one to say that line in chorus with. I might try my cat. Terry? No. Just a few more million years and he will evolve speech. I visited the Whitworth Museum and Gallery in Manchester when I presented Meet Me at the Museum a year ago, or half a virus ago. I chose the Whitworth because... It's local to where I'm living now, and it's got this amazing working-class engineer origins. Architecturally, it's breathtaking. It's halfway between being in a done-up factory and stepping onto a Star Trek vehicle. When I was there with Auntie Christine, I met its director, Alistair Hudson. Alistair's a dynamic chap who champions the idea of the useful museum, the idea that a museum isn't just dusty relics and paintings hung in dark buildings waiting for people to come in and find them, but a place that is active and alive, collaborating with people and communities, much like my lockdown fridge and the yoghurt inside it. While the museum remains closed for the time being, the coronavirus pandemic and lockdown hasn't stopped Alistair and his team, continuing to keep the Whitworth active and continuing to change the way the museum works.
1: We're building an online programme, but rather than it being just for lockdown, what we're trying to do is do it so it lasts above and beyond this current moment. And a lot of the direction we're going with the Whitworth is around this idea of you know, the instrumental institution, a sort of useful museum which plays a role in people's lives. We were thinking of changing and evolving anyway as an institution that was based around care and consideration and really trying to have effect on on social structures and the way we live. That just, in a way, gets accelerated now. So in this physical hiatus, it's quite a good chance to go, OK, so what are we really for and how could we use this moment if we, if we can't actually put on a show for the rest of the year because there's no, there's no shipping, there's no loans... Everything's on hold. How can we recalibrate and rethink and accelerate the changes we were going to make in terms of when we do reopen, do we operate differently and, you know, work with people differently?
0: Alistair's useful museum is very much in keeping with why the Whitworth was even built in the first place, for people.
1: The mission and vision for the gallery is still based on its original founding intentions, you know, that sort of 1889 Victorian statement. Its founding statement was for the perpetual gratification of the people of Manchester. It's for people. It's for, it's for making people's lives better and for contributing to the economy but I would say not in a sort of mercantile Victorian capitalist way but economy in the broadest sense. It's like how do you make a good living system for society and our role really is about how you use art to improve the conditions of living. In, in all walks of life. I mean, I was saying before all this happened, I always said that 70% of what a museum or an art gallery does is invisible to most people. They think of these places as pictures on walls. And they go, well, you know, what the hell does anybody do in these places? But actually, there's an enormous amount that gets done in education and healthcare and volunteering services. And I think if the wider public knew what it is that museums and galleries do on this front, this invisible 70%, there'd be much more public support, much more understanding, actually, of what art is and what it does and how it works in people's lives. It saves us from this this
0: trajectory of art being this kind of elitist pastime. Art, an elitist pastime? I have to tell you, listener, that while I'm recording this on a Zoom call, behind me, over my right shoulder, is a stroke-for-stroke copy of Pissarro's Hyde Park. I've never thought that art is elitist. If you dive deeper into the kinds of projects that Whitworth is involved in, it doesn't sound like art with a capital A, unless it's at the beginning of a sentence, then of course grammatically even I would suggest using a capital A. It sounds a lot more like real people and humans interacting together, sharing knowledge and ideas.
1: The constituent museum approach, which is about not just us deciding what the programme is, but working with people to decide the content, the meaning, the role of the institution in the city. It's about sort of collecting relationships as much as objects. We have a whole programme which relates the art collection with our park, with a kind of, I suppose, an alternative health service, but it's not an alternative. It's very much symbiotic with the NHS and with clinicians across the road at the Royal Manchester Infirmary. We're doing a project ongoing now with people affected or going through issues around stillbirth. Working with these groups who are going through these difficulties to use art collections in a therapeutic, in a mental health capacity, but also to use that as a, as a forum in which these, uh, you know, these issues could be normalised, I suppose, and understood.
0: Under the lockdown, with our museums and galleries closed, their future is unknown, scary. But Alistair, and I definitely got this impression when I met him, isn't someone to sit about and mope.
1: I'm a glass-half-full person, that's for sure. You know, both the art galleries in Manchester have been through wars and famine and revolution and everything else, so they'll they'll survive in one way or another. But there's some very tough things happening at the moment, and the financial implications of this could be super serious. And we we just don't know what they are yet, but obviously not being open is terrible because you actually realise how... Great, the buildings and the collections and the park is, and having crowds of people in the building, all doing different things, the whole thing bustling away is what brings joy. That's what, that's what you miss, and you realise, yeah, this is why you need public buildings.
0: I have since been back to the Whitworth with my daughter, my daughter who is so satanically charged with energy that during the second week in lockdown, I actually just put a blob of holy water on her forehead just to check. I needed to know if it would sizzle. And I remember when lockdown first started, people were saying it was the perfect opportunity to reflect and produce a brilliant piece of art that would change the world. In reality, has anyone really done this? My first goal was to get my sock drawer in order. I have failed to do that. I haven't got dressed for a week. Art and culture plays a role in our lives every single day, whether you're aware of it or not. And art has a particular role to play during times of crisis and uncertainty. Like the time we find ourselves in right now. Olivia Lang is a writer, mostly of non-fiction books, including The Lonely City, which many have been turning to during lockdown, finding solace in Olivia's words on loneliness. Olivia's newest book is called Funny Weather, Art in an Emergency. It's a collection of essays on how art can help us through difficult times. But Olivia didn't quite anticipate the difficult time we're currently in. The book was released in April 2020, when we were all coming to terms with living through a worldwide pandemic. But why the title, Funny Weather?
2: It comes from a series of columns that I wrote for Freeze magazine, which I started, I suppose, about five years ago. And they asked me if I'd write a column and to pick my own title. And I chose Funny Weather because I felt like we were heading into funny times. It was before Brexit and it was before Trump, but it felt like the political atmosphere was beginning to get unsettled. And I had an idea that I wanted to sort of chart the political landscape by way of artworks and then things got drastically stranger and more disturbing very quickly, leading us up to the immense disturbances of the present day. As for the emergency, I think I'm very drawn to artists who work with a sense of emergency, but that emergency varies drastically. A lot of the essays in Funny Weather are connected to the AIDS crisis. So... A pandemic in which vast amounts of particularly gay men and particularly people in the art world were dying. And it tries to grapple and make sense with how art had a role in that crisis, how art was a force for clarity, resistance, change, sustenance all the way through the AIDS crisis. Um, but then it's also about art in the refugee crisis, art and the environment, all the different ways in which art making might be a source of understanding, a way to make sense of difficult feelings, a way of bearing witness, a way of refusing silencing, all the different things that we need to do during a time of crisis. So it's really sort of exploring that whole, actually very broad terrain. We underestimate how powerful art is as a tool with which to think, a way of processing the difficult, a way of processing hard states. So I really wanted to put Funny Weather together as a kind of antidote to a time of emergency with the idea that it's a way for the reader to be introduced to all kinds of different artists, Agnes Martin, David Hockney, David Wonorovich, Basquiat, Turner's in there, Poussin is in there, all sorts of different people. And you won't love everybody. It's sort of a grab bag almost, that there's going to be something in there that's going to help. There are essays about alcoholism, there's essays about loneliness. It really grapples with the terrors of our times, but I think it's a really hopeful book because I feel hopeful. I feel like art is something that is our source of hope. It's a place where we can find hope, and without hope, we have nothing.
0: Art has always given me my hope. I don't want to get my tiny Stradivarius violin out, but I started life about as low as you can go in a mother and baby shelter. Then we went to council flat, then council house, then private flat, then I've got my own house. I've experienced life at every single tier and with tears. And I can tell you now, art is fundamentally important. Even when I had absolutely nothing, I could reach onto a shelf, take a novel and go anywhere I like. I could jump on a train, go to a gallery and have my imagination transported. And it was these artistic journeys in my mind, which translated to real sociological journeys in my life. This crisis is like nothing I've ever experienced before, apart from every time I go on tour and I sit in a room on my own for weeks on end. It's hard to think art can help repair this damage. It's also interesting how art, made in other times when coronavirus was nothing but a twinkle in a pangolin's eye, can speak to this time. What can art give us during this particular emergency when we're all so up and down emotionally? High highs, low lows.
2: and pleasure a, a sense of it's all, there's so many things that are going on in one's mind and in one's emotions through a time like this it, it is so frightening and it is so destabilising and I think that's part of why it feels like art is so meaningful and matters so much right now is the sense that people who have spent their lives making something that is beautiful, that has a feeling of clarity or calmness about it, or that's sort of electric and angry, I feel almost overwhelmingly grateful for it. It feels so valuable. What a thing to do with your life, to make something like that. What a a thing to leave behind. It's an object that exists communally. We're stuck in our houses and the art object can move sort of prodigally. It can can come to anyone's eyes at any time. And that sort of generosity feels crucial to me.
0: We've all been at home for a while now, and I miss going to different places that aren't my home or the supermarket. Not that I've even been to the supermarket. I don't believe people around my way have got what it takes to follow a giant blue arrow pointed on the floor. It is hard. I miss the community that gathers for an evening in a theatre when I perform. I miss my life. I miss the beach. I miss galleries. Did you pick up my crying during that paragraph? Can anything replace the feeling of physically being in a space? Well, Olivia thinks so.
2: There's nothing like the experience of walking into a gallery and clapping eyes on something that just, you know, knocks you off your feet. That's that's unmatched. But it does seem to me that some of those experiences are worth sort of revisiting in the memory and museums and galleries are incredibly important to me and the idea I'm sort of haunted at the moment maybe other people have said this by the idea of the empty museum I drove past the Fitzwilliam the other day in Cambridge and the idea of all of those paintings just alone and unwatched feels so eerie to me so so sort of strange you almost imagine them kind of talking to each other but there are so many resources for looking at work there's the internet there are books there are all of the things that you've seen in the past and I think an an odd effect that I've been noticing with lockdown is that my visual imagination and visual memory feels much stronger than it normally does I'm much less stimulated than I normally would be and things I've done in the past come back to me. So I've found that I've been sort of almost looking at works in my imagination, remembering paintings that I've seen that had an effect on me, remembering shows. There was a Howard Hodgkin show at the National Portrait Gallery a few years ago that I loved. And I feel almost like I can walk around it in my mind and look at those paintings and see those colours, the sort of tangerine orange and a wonderful ultramarine blue. It's no substitute. I miss it so badly to be able to look at paintings. I love paint in particular. But at the same time, we've all seen so much. We have seen so much more than other humans at any time in history. We're so spoiled in terms of the amount of art that we experience, the amount of things that we can see physically. So it feels like this is a time to really think back over and remember how precious it is to be able to experience art directly and so lavishly. Art isn't a luxury. It isn't something that's extra to ordinary life. It's the center of ordinary life. And I think seeing how much people have been relying on it, drawing on it, listening to music, to pull out feelings that they have, looking at art, becoming fascinated by things, losing themselves and their concerns in something larger, makes you feel so certain that art is a huge part of our ordinary lives. It's a tool for thinking with, and it's a source of richness, beauty, love. It's it's the most powerful thing that we have. So I think we're gonna to have to fight very hard for our museums, but I also feel like I don't have any questions about the value of that fight.
0: Like Olivia said, art isn't a luxury. And while for centuries our museums and galleries have felt like places reserved for a certain kind of people, i.e. the posh mystery master that comes up to me and tells me my toothless grin doth offend him, that's changing. Eleanor Morgan is the former senior curator and now head of programmes at the Middlesbrough Institute of Modern Art, also known as MIMA. M-I-M-A. Don't confuse it with the MMA or you'll end up in a cage having your face smashed in. I myself had an intense artistic experience in Middlesbrough when a pint of beer narrowly missed my face from the audience and landed on the floor, creating a Jackson Pollock action painting of Stella Artois next to my foot.
3: Mina's an amazing place and I really miss it right now. It's a building that opened in 2007 and it's in the centre of the town in Middlesbrough, in the kind of civic plaza. So it's surrounded by the library, the law courts, the town hall. And in a sense, the architecture of the building continues that feeling. So as you walk into Mima, there's a there's a huge open atrium space, which is the full height of the building. And it's all glass on one side. So it's it's this really wonderful, kind of permeable feeling in the architecture. And then on the top floor of the building, you have this viewing terrace from which you can see out across the public square, but also across to the river, the River Tees, which is really the kind of, I suppose, like the lifeblood of the area and the football stadium, which is very important. And then across to the Cleveland Hills, I really miss, and actually the whole team does that sense of walking through the town or, or just walking through the atrium at Mima and bumping into people or, you know, the people that use the building every day or come very regularly because it's a really important social space and a really key part of the town. Just those conversations you have in passing or the things you notice or see or smell that give you some of those sensations about what's happening and what you should be responding to.
0: Eleanor's role is shaping the direction of MIMA's public-facing programme, the artwork of the MIMA collection that goes on display and the projects the gallery runs. Eleanor makes sure the programmes feel relevant and urgent to their constituents, to the people of Middlesbrough.
3: I'd say that MIMA is really at the heart of the kind of social and cultural life of the Tees Valley. Connecting with communities is really core to who we are and what we do. Lots of people use it as part of their regular week so they come every tuesday and saturday or they'll come every single thursday to a particular workshop or a meetup being that kind of public open space is really key to who we are so an example of the way we work would be um, in the summer of 2019 a big exhibition and public program called fragile earth seeds weeds plastic crust which really looked at the really urgent issue of of climate emergency and brought together artists, uh, experts and specialists from the field of ecology and a whole range of school children, um, adults, and residents from the local area through 31 workshops across the summer, which happened both at MIMA in our community learning garden but also out and about, so at a National Trust site and care homes in the marketplace. It was just an incredible moment to really focus in on what was important to local constituents about um, the environment and the public green spaces around them and to make this quite overwhelming, intangible topic that was just constantly in the news around climate change, pollution, you know, these kind of disaster narratives to make them feel really relevant and urgent in the locale.
0: MIMA's work listening and collaborating with the locale hasn't stopped. Even under lockdown, content and connection is pouring out of not only the curators that work there, but the residents and artists of Middlesbrough.
3: It's very much within the MIMA ethos to be open and available One example of what we're doing is a project called Mima Zina. And it's a notice board come kind of digital journal that is published each week online. And within it are a range of columns and entries from a whole host of people who are involved in Mima. So some of the people who come every Thursday to community day to contribute to and lead sessions So workshops with textiles, for example, or a a dementia-friendly session. So they're all contributing, plus some of our volunteers, some of the artists we work with. But also, each week there's an open call, so people have been sharing their stories from the area or their favourite object from their own home or a memory of an artwork in the Middlesbrough collection. And that's all brought together in this really beautiful designed digital journal like a digital version of community day where lots of people cross over and meet and are connected through creative activity we're doing lots of ring arounds and chatting with people but I suppose also through me we're able to stay in touch with lots of people about what they're doing what they've been up to in terms of creative activity but also there's like a a column in that for what people are watching on the telly so that's our kind of creative mechanism for staying in touch we're very aware that there are lots of people not accessing the digital and we're now finding new ways of of uh,
0: printing and distributing some of what we do even now with mima as a cultural institution facing unknown future insecurities Eleanor's chief worry is for the community
3: i think my primary concerns are how it will impact the communities in the Tees Valley. You know, with, with children not at school, social inequalities become more pronounced. Of course, the art sector will shift, but there are also people who are, you know, in really dangerous and difficult situations. And, you know, children living in poverty. So I think my primary concern is how, as a public institution and a, and a space for connecting and learning, how we can support children and young people in the next phase but I think more than ever MIMA will be really valued by people and will be felt to be an important space because of all the things that everyone's missing at the moment you know that sense of social connectivity the kind of cerebral and thinking experiences that are very difficult at the moment because our lives have changed so much and so many of our communities are under immense stress and strain but also the things that I think we're all missing in terms of the kind of sensory and tactile. So we're thinking very carefully about, you know, what does, what does a museum and gallery offer that's very different from being at home and on
0: screen? Ah, sensory stimulation. I long for it. Mind you, technically, having the word Daddy! screamed into your ear 20 times a day, that is a sort of sensory stimulation. But hey, great change, positive and negative, comes with times of great upheaval. Former Meet Me at the Museum presenter, Katie Hessel, is an art historian, curator and runs the Great Women Artists podcast and Instagram. Her work has, of course, been affected by COVID.
4: Curating virtually is very different because I think you know, it, it's not something I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to, you know, the whole fun of shows is to kind of create an actual physical space where, you know, people can engage and you can have discussion and parties and whatnot. And I think the art world and the art kind of industry has become so, it's so big and everyone wants to ship every artwork across the whole world the whole time. And I just don't think that's necessary. And the fact that what can come from this is people being like, okay, we've got this with a Tate, we have this, sensational collection that is has more than enough artworks to fill 100 exhibitions and let's use it let's really look at what we've got you know i find myself going through the tate's website you know and 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 what artworks speak to me and i'm like oh my god i haven't even seen half of these works and that's just ludicrous because they should be on display and hopefully now we'll give curators a chance to actually really look and celebrate what they've got which i think can be a very powerful thing museums are almost like churches or something they're places that have relics as artworks and they're places that you almost kind of worship it's a very kind of strange um it's a very strange kind of scenario galleries they're like these sort of perfect celestial like places and if they are not open and if you know places of worship aren't open or something I think that you know even just looking at art online or something could be really powerful or art and books I mean I'm lucky to have a few art books and I've just found myself you know going through them and just thinking about things. You don't necessarily have to have the context of the artist or know all this background. It's just about how you react to it. You know, I love that. I love getting lost in things.
0: Katie has curated an imaginary museum for us to enjoy. She selected works from institutions and created an exhibition putting the works in spaces inspired by museums and galleries.
4: I think this exhibition is very contrasting. I don't know if it has much kind of dialogue or synergy with it, but hopefully it should kind of explain art history in a way, Uh, you know, different different dimensions of art history.
0: (laughs) Her museum has the central portico of the National Gallery. You step in and enter the Tate Modern's Turbine Hall. In a room off the hall is the Barbara Hepworth Sculpture Garden from Tate St. Ives. It's like a Doctor Who episode for people that like painting. There's amazing stuff hanging off various walls. But I'm going to ask the question I always ask as soon as I enter the museum. Not, where's the Botticelli? Not, where's the sculpture? Excuse me, do you know where the toilet is? My daughter really needs a wee. Too late. Excuse me, do you know where the gift shop is? I want to buy something expensive she'll never play with. Excuse me, uh, we can't look at the exhibitions. We've got to leave She's had a meltdown. Bye. Ah, oh, that was like being at a real museum with my daughter.
4: So my Imagine a Museum really kind of brings together quite an eclectic mix of spaces and artwork. So you start with the grandiosity of the central portico of the National Gallery, and that's such grandiose entrance because that really symbolises, I think, importance and history and culture and what that means. I think the National Gallery is a staple museum of the entire country, and so I want to have that sort of dramatic effect. <laughs> You walk in and it's the London Tate Modern's Turbine Hall, which probably is quite surprising for some people, but it's the greatest exhibition space in the world and it it's a place that really instils, I think, dynamism, creativity, possibility and just sheer vastness. There's also all this space to kind of reflect. It's also about that, you know, I, I spoke about earlier, like this kind of pilgrimage almost, because you are in this strange cathedral-like space and you're going up to this, that, like the altarpiece, which is the artwork in a way. And then to the side, perhaps on the east side, you have the Barbara Hepworth Sculpture Garden of Tate St. Ives. It would be a kind of, you know, a chapel in a way <laughs> to my cathedral. And what what I would want is that you could choose the season that you could see it in. So you could see it in spring, summer, autumn or winter. I've been in late winter, early spring when it was Really, really wet and raining. And then I've also been in like kind of bright sunshine. And actually, in a strange way, I preferred it when it was wet because what I love about the sculptures is the fact that all this rainwater comes on them and some of them fill up with water and then that creates sort of different reflections. And then seeing it in summer, maybe there are all these kind of overgrown plants that kind of encompass all the sculptures and you can see all the different flowers that kind of bloom and intertwine with the sculptures. I love my favorite things to kind of visit an artist's house or an artist's studio, like, I don't know, Farley's Farm, and you can see where Lee Miller actually lived, or you can see where Barbara Hepworth actually worked, and you can see the view that she looked out of, and you can see her workshop and some of those stones that actually are still there, that need to be chipped away that she never completed. You can see her tools, her apron. You know, you can see the way that she walked through this garden, and you can also see how she put together this place. Um, I just think it allows for such intimacy and understanding of their Practice, but also I'd love for my imaginary museum to also allow everyone to climb on the sculptures because I think that would be <laughs> that would be great. Okay, so after this, and this might not be in the turbine hall as such. Maybe it, again, it's a kind of another chapel which has sort of National Gallery quilted style walls or something because it is Artemisia Gentileschi's self-portrait of Saint Catherine of Alexandria from sixteen sixteen. And the reason why I wanted to include this work is to obviously honour the first ever exhibition of her work that has had to be postponed due to the coronavirus. So I think it's important that we exhibit one of these works here. Uh, This portrait was one of the most important works by Artemisia, and I love the fact that she has immortalised herself as Saint Catherine, who was this 4th century saint who was tortured and tied to a wheel. And What we see here is Artemisia resting her hand on these vicious spikes. The story goes of Artemisia Gentileschi, and this is something that shouldn't be the focus of her work, but it is something that happened. in her life was age 17. She was raped by the painter Agostino Tassi. And uh, after this, a long trial followed. And during this trial, she was tortured and she was subjected to these kind of grueling questions by the judge. And Agostino Tassi's punishment was never enforced. So I think it's important that we know what happened and we know the correct version, which is Artemisia's. And so the fact that she's showing herself as St. Catherine really shows this resilience and this martyrdom and the fact that you know she survived this torture. You know, I think what this work does is show the grandeur of this woman. She almost looks like a kind of marble statue or something. There is something so incredibly empowering about her pose. It was the first work that the National Gallery bought of her work, and I just think we need to see more of it because I think she was so daring for her time. I mean, the fact that, I don't know, people even let her exhibit these works in the 17th century is just mind-blowing because they're so out there and they're so uh, bloody and um, dramatic and passionate. My next piece is Lubaina Himid's Freedom and Change from 1984. Lubaina Himid for me, is just a very significant artist. I think she's just great because her works really respond to the emissions in Western art history. I've got a quote from her. So she explains that, the device of placing two black women in a painting together was an early method I used to counteract this assumption that there was only one story and that the black woman never spoke. So this particular work is all about kind of celebrating people from different cultures and saying that their voice matters as well. I should also add that Lubaina Himid was the first woman over 60 as well to win the Turner Prize, which I think is very important. So this work, Freedom and Change, is a large installation image that's painted onto a pink bed sheet and I love the immediacy of this work because it does show that a, a, an artwork doesn't necessarily have to be on canvas it's of two black women dancing or running barefoot holding hands as if to sort of twirl joyfully and it might signify the fact that they're in a relationship and I love that fact and the work also appropriates the painting two women running on the beach which is by Picasso from 1922 so what Hemmi is also doing is almost kind of claiming back art history and I love it when artists do that I think because what we've seen in art history are these quite you know sexist male gaze lenses so I think it's important to kind of go back and address that and I think as much as we should be celebrating living artists and everything I love the fact that we're actually also maybe putting something right in our history so the next piece is Leonora Carrington's The Old Maids which is in the Sainsbury Centre for Visual Arts which is in Norwich And, you know, this work was made in 1947. It's basically a group of people who are clearly in a house. It looks like a very British house, although we know that the work would have been made in Mexico. It almost looks like a tea party or something. So on the right-hand side, we have this long table with a few cakes, with a few teacups, and these people who look like they're at a party there in these very (laughs) strange hats and very kind of elaborate ball gowns and interesting headdresses um and they look like they're staring at this one figure who's in the middle drinking it looks like a cup of tea who is who doesn't really have a body as such she's almost in this kind of green cape and she has this strange halo and we're not really quite sure if these people are human or they're animal and then in the background we have what looks like a maid so this must be kind of where the whole concept of the old maid comes from. And we know that Leonora Carrington grew up in very kind of extravagant circumstances. She was brought up by a sort of governess, a very sort of strict French governess who we know that she was very afraid of. And so and also in this large Gothic mansion. So throughout her entire career, although she moves to Mexico quite early on, She's constantly harking back to this quite gothic childhood. It's interesting that she's constantly revisiting that. And I love just seeing the Surrealists' interpretation of their life. I think it's just so fantastical and magical and wonderful that it would just be great to have that in the exhibition as a completely kind of escapism from everything.
0: So that's it. I hope I've convinced you that museums matter art matters. Just head onto a search engine and look things up. Loads of galleries, loads of museums are doing virtual tours and having experiences online. Even my business, the comedy business, if you count comedy as an art, and that's a whole different podcast. Various comedy clubs are now starting to transmit comedians doing sets while you watch on YouTube or Zoom or other social media platforms. Some movies are being released to watch at home by the BFI. The Hay Festival are holding a number of talks on art, life, science. There's loads out there to keep your brain fed while we wait for the museums to reopen and for us to flock back, to gasp at things, to purse our intellectual lips while someone else is watching and go, hmm, so poignant, when in fact you haven't understood what's in front of you. You just bloody love looking at it.
2: If you're missing museums, why not get art in your inbox? And sign up for the Art Fund newsletter. Visit artfund.org/newsletter to subscribe.